Welcome to the Perspectives on Healthcare podcast, where members of the medical community from different roles, venues, and locations share their unique perspectives on quality healthcare, its future, and how to improve it. Now, from the Your Keynote Speaker Studio in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, here is your host, Rob Oliver. Thank you, and I appreciate you being with me today. My guest today joins us from Austin, Texas. Her name is Susan Landers. She is a neonatologist. She is an attending physician as well as an author and a speaker. She is a member of the baby boomer generation. And Susan, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Rob. It's a pleasure to be here. I had a wonderful career in neonatology. I practiced medicine in the NICU, the neonatal intensive care unit, for over 34 years. I took care of small premature babies, full-term babies who got sick, babies who were born with birth defects. It was a very rewarding career, and I loved working with the families. So I will just let you know, first of all, you've already answered my first question in some ways, <laughs> but the NICU is near and dear to my heart. Um, I am the father of 19-year-old triplets who spent a week and a half in the NICU after they were born. And so uh, there's a soft spot in my heart there for any, any of the folks that work in that particular unit. I, just from my personal experience, how much of that is is a good news situation and how much of that are you sharing bad news with, with families? Well, the, the good news is that 90% of births produce normal newborn term babies. It's only 10% of births where there's a preterm baby. Of course, that rate is higher if mom has twins or triplets because of infertility or reproductive assistive techniques. Um, premature babies don't all get sick. Some of them are big and strong and they're just really loud and breathing. They don't need a ventilator, but they do need a week or two in the, in the NICU. Uh, some are very, very sick. Some babies are born all as five and 600 grams at 22 and 23 weeks gestation and they stay in the hospital for five, six months or longer. The majority of premature babies that are more than 28 weeks gestation survive. Most thrive and go on to be perfectly normal children. It's only under 28 weeks gestation and in babies who have major complications in which we see poor outcomes higher mortality rates. The tiniest babies, those born at 22, 23, 24 weeks, are the ones who tend to survive less often older, so to speak, gestational age counterparts. So it's not all bad news. It really depends a lot on the reason the baby was born prematurely, how sick they were when they were born, the uh, the birth defect, whether or not it can be fixed surgically, whether or not it just needs medical management. There are just lots of factors that contribute. So, but it's not a field you can do um, 
without having some heartbreak along the way. We do have some cases that don't go well and we lose some babies and uh, we're still struggling with the technology for those smallest premature babies. Yeah, I, I would imagine that there is, it, in some ways it's a bit of a roller coaster that there are some very, very joyful moments and there are some very painful moments uh, as well. I, what does quality healthcare mean to you? Quality healthcare means to me therapy starts appropriately, it's effective, it uh, produces good results, and no mistakes are made in the giving of that therapy. Whether it's starting a baby on a ventilator, whether it's starting an IV antibiotic, whether it's putting in a central line for nutrition for a tiny preemie, everything we do has risk. And everything we do needs to be done in a certain way. So quality health care means that the things we do are done correctly, timely, and effectively. Now, having said that, things still go wrong from time to time. And so we do see complications a good example of that is the use of vacuum extractors or forceps to assist vaginal deliveries. There's a way to do those things correctly, to do those procedures. And you can talk with an obstetrician about that. But if those proce- And those procedures can be life-saving when an obstetrician has to get a baby delivered in a timely manner. But those, both of those procedures have low risk of complications attendant with them. So quality health care minimizes potential for complications and it maximizes therapeutic benefit. Okay. So what I'm hearing you say is that no matter what the procedure is, there is, there is a risk that goes with it that um, it's, it's inherent in the procedure, but you, Sometimes things just don't go right, not because of medical error, not because of um, poor technique, but because there is just, a, it's a, we're dealing with humans. And, exactly. And it's not all, um, it doesn't, we're not machines and there are sometimes things that happen outside of, right. outside of our control. Right. We put in tiny little pick lines, percutaneous uh, IV lines that track up the baby's arm. And we do that for a reason, to lower the risk of infection. And they go through a small vein and the veins get bigger and they just enter the heart. And sometimes that catheter punctures the heart covering. Sometimes that catheter punctures the lung. And it's very rare. And even if the procedure's done perfectly, those two major complications can occur. Got it. I, you already did this, but I'll ask anyway. Can you give me an example of quality health care? Quality health care is when a mother who is a gestational diabetic who has taken very good care of herself during her pregnancy, she's monitored her glucose and she's watched her diet and she's 
taken her insulin and her labs look good. And she comes in for a delivery and her baby is normal, but her baby might have some low blood sugars. The healthcare system screens her baby who's at higher risk for low blood sugars, make sure the baby is fed early, continues to screen. And if feeding doesn't do the trick, the baby gets an IV. And all of that happens in a timely manner. The mother was informed long before delivery about the risk of having a baby with low blood sugar. And the blood sugar responds to therapy and is allowed to breastfeed her baby. And mom and baby are joined back together, rooming in on the second or third day of life. And they get to go home together on the fourth or fifth day. That's quality health care. Some people would say, oh, my God, that's terrible. That's separating mom and baby. But when you know that problems may occur with a diabetic mother or with a mom who's pregnant with triplets, and you talk to the patient ahead of time about what to expect, then when those things and we're ready to take care of them, we're ready for preterm triplets, for example, and the care goes smoothly, that's quality health care. Got it. What do you wish people understood about your role in healthcare? I wish people understood that my role in healthcare is to explain to parents what is happening with their baby help them to understand what their baby is capable of, what their child is going to go through and they will go through, and that they understand that we have things to support their child. Modern parents are very anxious about outcomes and want to know how things are going to go and if he's going to be normal and what if if that and my role as a neonatologist and i'm basically a pediatrician even though i'm in the icu is to explain things to parents to um uh to to actually explain to them how the treatments work and what risks there are um, with putting a baby on a ventilator or putting a central line in a baby or putting a baby on ECMO. I think the neonatologist is a straight shooter who helps the parents deal with what they're going through. And I always thought that my role as a, as an intensive care doctor was not totally taking care of the baby, but it was also attending to the parents. That is such an interesting thing that you say. And and let me, just say this, that we went through IVF and we, they told us all of the statistics, right? They, they gave us the, the likelihood that you would, that we would be able to have a child. Then there was the likelihood of twins and the likelihood of triplets and quadruplets and so on. And I will say that I, I heard here's the, there's a possibility that you can have a child. And after that, everything kind of, uh, everything kind of stopped. Okay. Right. And, it goes in one ear and out the other. <laughs> right. And I'm wondering, do you have, have that same experience when it comes to parents who are, uh, who have a child who is, you know, needs some form of therapy and you say, we're going to give them this therapy there. Um, 
it it is likely to help them, but there is a risk involved. I'm assuming that it's very similar that they hear it might help them and the yes. risk they don't hear. Yes. Yes. We always want to focus on the possibility and everyone wants their child to be the exception that will improve and respond to therapy. Human beings can only tolerate so much stress and having a set of triplets and having a sick premature baby or a baby with a birth defect is extremely overwhelming. And so we are used to telling parents things many times over and answering questions that we answered four days before, because you can't get it all. I like parents to write things down. And to, if they go home and look things up, I like them to write down their questions and come back. And then the next day we talk about it. So it is a process by which you have to let that, the stress and the feeling of overwhelmed die down a little and then they open up to get more information. It's, that's true of any family who has a patient in the ICU or in the hospital anywhere. We only hear initially, oh my God, we hope they're gonna get better and they're doing something to help them get better. We don't hear the outcome. Not ready for it. We can't handle it emotionally. Yeah. And I will say that as a parent, when things happen to my kids, I would, I'd rather be sick for a week than have my kids sick for a day or, you know, or even just a couple hours, that kind of thing. So I would, what you said earlier about taking care of the parents being part of the job of caring for the, the new infants is very, very telling and very interesting. I, what excites you about the future of healthcare? I'm excited that the future of healthcare has not been tarnished by the COVID pandemic. We still have lots of kids pre-med applying to med schools. We still have lots of young people wanting to go into nursing. That being said, I am really worried about burnout in healthcare. Mm. I am really worried about physicians and nurses and respiratory therapists and others who have been through the ringer with this pandemic. If we do not start talking about mental wellness for healthcare providers, we will lose our doctors, lose our nurses. We're already losing nurses. They leave, they quit, or they go work for a traveling nurse agency. We have to take care of our caregivers they're so stressed right now that they cannot do more than they're already doing. And when we finally figure out in healthcare that mental wellness for the caregiver is crucial, healthcare will really be capable of thriving for the long term. So I'm really big on. Um, a champion of wellness in every practice and every hospital service, uh, surveys of givers to see how they're doing, uh, talking together, peer support, counseling if necessary, paid leave if people are burned out, time off to figure out what's going on. If we don't do those things, our best workers, our most compassionate people, experienced doctors and nurses, 
will continue to drop out of the system. And then we'll have nothing but young, inexperienced doctors and nurses. Not that that's bad, but they're less experienced. And so I don't want that to continue as this pandemic rolls along. Uh, I had Justin Ayers on who um, started a equalitymd.com, which services the LGBTQ community. And interestingly enough, he was, you know, they're doing education for medical professionals. And the area that they decided to start with was mental health, because in a survey, 70% of the community said mental health is their biggest concern. And I think that is not, that's not particular to that community. Mental no. health is something that is, uh, it's really affecting all of us, especially the way it's been exacerbated by COVID. Uh, right, right. What is one thing medical professionals can start doing today to improve the quality of healthcare? They can talk to each other. When something bad happens, they can go, oh my God, that really sucks. Let's talk about that. Let's sit down as a team and dissect it. They can prop each other up. They can go to the guy next to them or the girl that's crying and they can say, look, that was a really bad case. It's okay to be sad. It's hard to have your, uh, your patient die. They can talk. They have to talk to each other. And hospital administrators are going to have to listen when doctors and nurses talk. Whether it's peer support, whether it's psychotherapy, whether it's a social worker on the unit, they've got to talk about what they're seeing and what they're feeling. And if they don't, we won't be able to get better. So I, that's my wish, that we would learn how to make it okay to talk about our bad feelings. So let me just see, did I hear you suggest that the social worker can be a support, not just for the patients, but for the staff as well? It, 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 is that what you said? Absolutely. Absolutely. The perinatal social worker in the NICU propped me up some days. <laughs> if she saw that I was sad about a baby doing poorly, she wasn't just propping up the parents who had their family and their chaplain there. She was propping me up and, and getting me to talk about my feelings. And so maybe it's a long career with a lot of experience, but if we do not talk about our feelings in healthcare and how we're having compassion fatigue or how we're mad at anti-vaxxers or whatever it is we're feeling, if we don't talk about those things, and we stuff them down, we won't get better. We'll all get sicker. Yeah, I think my analogy on that is it's kind of like the Red Sea or, or the, um, the Dead Sea where there's no outlet for it. So all of the toxicity flows in. And if there's no outlet for the toxicity, you end up with a place that can no longer sustain life. And that's, that would be a huge concern, especially in an industry where people are providing such, such important care. Listen... Susan, you've been fantastic. I appreciate you being on the show and thank you for sharing your perspective on healthcare. Thanks for listening to Perspectives on Healthcare. Visit perspectivesonhealthcare.com to learn more about Rob Oliver or to subscribe so you never miss an episode. If this podcast was valuable, we'd appreciate a review on iTunes or if you tell a friend or coworker about the show, that would be helpful too. Join us again next time for more Perspectives on Healthcare.